Maybe I turned it off. Yeah, it was me. Sorry. Uh, how do you explain the unexplainable? Have anything happened to you and you're trying to explain it to somebody else and they're just not getting it? And you try and you try and you get all the detail in the world and it's just not getting through. I like there's some things that just have to be experienced if you really want to understand. Like, like I could explain to you what it was like to, um, to see from the car uh, the glimpse of the Grand Canyon through the trees and then walking up to the edge. It, it, re- it was overwhelming. It was breathtaking. I could ex- give you every detail about that. But it just isn't going to have the same force as, as if you walked up to the edge of the Grand Canyon or if you've been there before. It just doesn't work sometimes. We try to explain things that just can't be explained. It made me think about um, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, um, there's a moment where he's talking, he's talking about another person, but pretty much everybody agrees that he really is talking about himself. He's just trying to be humble. And he talks about this other person and says they got caught up into heaven. And, and he's talking about it, and, and, and what he says about it is, is this. He says that, that this other individual, probably Paul again said, that he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And so basically, Paul, the, the greatest apostle, arguably the greatest apostle, gets a moment to peek into heaven, and what he comes away with is, like, I just can't explain it. <laughs> I was just too overwhelming. What I heard, what I saw, it was too big. It's too much to try and put into words and explain to you. And so as we read Revelation, I'm like, is it any wonder that we have difficulty processing the things that John is writing? Like John is trying to explain something that's just unexplainable. And, and on top of that, we're 2,000 years removed from the time period in which John wrote this stuff. So John is trying to explain to people in his own day using the language of the day to help them understand the things that he's seeing and hearing and what's going on in these great visions. And, and I think they got it a lot better than we get it. Not only is John trying to explain the unexplainable, but the words that he uses, the ideas that he uses to convey that are foreign to us 2,000 years later. We just don't understand it. We would use completely different terms today if we were trying to explain heaven. And so, and so what do we do? As we try to read Revelation, we're like, what do we do? Well, I think the only thing we can do is, is pray. Pray for open eyes, pray for open hearts, for open minds, that we can catch a glimpse of what John is trying to explain. Um, and, and then we have to trust that the blessing we're going to get is just from reading Revelation, not necessarily from understanding every single thing about Revelation. And so the blessing of reading it comes in the contemplating, in the thinking about, in the wondering, not in fully understanding. And so we jump into um, part three today. Let's, uh, let's pray. God, thanks for the opportunity to come together. It's been a wonderful morning of worship already. The songs that we've sung, the things that we've done, it just is good to be here today. Thank you 
for this place that we can come and worship. Thank you for this country where we can do that um, freely. Thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy uh, in this place. God, as we dive into Revelation chapter 4 and 5 today, would, would, you, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Even though we don't fully understand the language that John is using and he's trying to explain something that just is impossible to explain, um, we know that through your Holy Spirit, you can give us insight into these things. Um, n- not new revelation about what John is saying, but you can inspire us to catch a glimpse of what he's talking about. And so God, would you do that today as we read in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, now what I hope that you have caught from the last um, two weeks in the series is that um, John is just trying to paint a picture here um, of heaven. And uh, at the beginning, it's, it's pretty rough. Now, I, I follow our friend uh, Jim back there on the camera. He's an incredible artist. He paints these great uh, Western pictures, and we've got several animal pictures of his uh, hanging up in our house. And uh, one of the things that Jim has been doing is he's been showing the process of painting these beautiful pictures. Um, and, and I don't want to, uh, I don't want to offend. I mean, I, I'm okay with offending him a little bit. Um, but, but one of the things he's been doing on social media is he's been posting pictures of the progress of his paintings. And I'll just um, go on record as saying uh, what they look like at the end is way better than what they look like at the beginning. So in the beginning, they're, they're pretty rough, right? Like he's just kind of sketching things and he's laying down a foundation with the paints on the canvas. And a lot of times you're like, really? Like, I don't know, Jim, what you're doing here, but okay, I'm going to trust you because you're the professional. And I think that's what John is doing. John is painting this picture, but here at the beginning, it looks pretty rough. But the reality is great paintings never start out that way. They're always rough. It's always a blank canvas. It always looks bad in the beginning. And so this week, we're going to continue to build on this foundation. John is going to put a few more strokes on the canvas. He's going to help us see things a little bit more clearly. And and John is is going to give us this picture and this story. And, and, And what we're really going to focus on is about five verses that are sandwiched between two really incredible moments that John is, is witnessing. I mean, overwhelming moments that John is witnessing. But those five verses that we're going to look at are critical to understanding the, the whole rest of the book and everything else that John writes. That The revelation of the unity of heaven and humanity that come in this book really do hinge on the five verses that we're going to look at in chapter 5. So let's dive in. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. John says, so uh, So remember Jesus was talking in, in the last few chapters and he's writing, he's giving these notes, these letters to the seven churches in Asia. And now John takes over talking about his vision. He says, after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Like, that's crazy enough. And the the first voice, the one he heard that sounded like a trumpet, that same voice said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. 
And at once he says, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders. And those elders were clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunders. And before the throne, there were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was like a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in the front and behind. Julie, will you go back to the next, the verse before this? Okay, Um, John is in heaven. He sees the throne of God. Like this is incredible moment. And I just want to point out that here's how he describes it. He who sat there, God sat there, looked like a rock. That's Jasper and Carnelian, by the way. Those are, those are stones. They're precious stones. But if you look them up on the internet, they're not impressive stones. It's kind of odd, don't you think, that John would use these stones to describe the throne of God and him sitting on it. And then the only thing that I can think is that if you mix Jasper and Carnelian together, it can look like a flame of fire, which is kind of cool. And so maybe what John was trying to paint in this picture is that when he saw God, it looked like he was on fire. But if you're a first century Jewish person and you're being persecuted for your faith, you might want to think that your God mm, maybe resembled uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Big and strong and power. I mean, look, like I've been told I look like Stone Cold Steve Austin. Um, I mean, I don't disagree, but try to play it down. Anyway, uh, it's odd, except that I'm like, if I'm one of those people that John is talking to, I might want to think of my God as fire and stone, because those are pretty impressive things. The other thing I want to point out is he says that around the throne, there was a rainbow. And you think of a rainbow, what do you think of? Lots of colors, right? Like there's every color in a rainbow. What does John say this rainbow looks like? An emerald. I, 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 have, I bear no ill will about this, but years ago when we had no money, I bought my wife a pair of what to me at the time was very expensive emerald earrings. Um, she does not wear them. She does not wear them because they look like, and they really do. I I mean, after she pointed this out, I was like, yeah, that's kind of weird. Um, They look like a Christmas present. There's an emerald with a little bit of gold in the middle of it, and it looks like a weird, cheesy Christmas present. So I totally get why she she doesn't wear them. But um, emeralds are are green, right? So I'm like, John, around the throne, there was a rainbow, all of these colors, but they look like an emerald. That doesn't make any sense to me. So it was a rainbow of every color, but it was green. Uh, and, and that's all, all we know. And, and then around the throne were 24 other thrones. Okay, Julie, go to the next one uh, again. There's 24 elders. They're clothed in white, all this stuff. Uh, and then from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Now, almost every time that the throne of God is mentioned in the scriptures... 
This is part of that story. In fact, if you remember back um, not very long ago, we did a series where we talked about the Israelites as they wandered through the desert. They come out of Egypt and they wander for 40 years before they get into the promised land. And when they get to Mount Sinai, God comes down to speak to them and talk to them. And how how does it describe God? God came down onto Mount Sinai in what was a cloud. It was a dark cloud, and from the cloud it looked like fire and lightning and thunder. In fact, it was so terrifying to the people. Like God said, assemble the people around Mount Sinai, and I'm going to talk to them, and I'm going to give them the law. And the people came and listened to him for a while, and then they said to Moses, we can't talk to God anymore. Like we can't listen to God anymore. It is too scary. We don't like it. You go talk to him, Moses, and we'll stay down here where it's comfortable and go about our daily lives, but we can't handle it. The throne of, of God is, is, always, is almost always, in a way, depicted as this cloud and lightning and thunder. And this, it, it, the point is, it's impressive. We know what it was like. There was a tornado in Andover not very long ago, and we were driving home from Wichita, and I kept getting notifications on my phone from the ring doorbell because my son and all his friends who were at our house because we have a basement kept walking out onto the front porch to watch the storm because that's what we do in Kansas, right? The alarms go off, and that's when we know to go outside and see what's happening. And so they're out there watching the storm, and so we know what this looks like. We've seen clouds and lightning and thunder, and and if it's close, it's terrifying, very scary. Around the throne were burning these torches of fire, which is seven spirits of God. We talked about that um, last week. There was also a a sea of glass, and that has a picture, right? You've seen um, a, a lake in the mountains, maybe. You don't have mountains here in Kansas, but I grew up in Oregon. We had lots of mountains, um, Seven Lakes Basin, where there's seven lakes in the top of a mountain. It's really um, beautiful. And the wind, when it's not blowing, the lakes are just, it's a sea of glass. It's beautiful. But John doesn't stop there. He, he writes like he's writing for Lord of the Rings. Um, he says, a sea of glass uh, like crystal. Well, which is it, John? Is it a sea of glass or is it like a, a crystal? Because in my mind, those things are a little different. And then around the throne, on each side of the throne, there's these living creatures and they're full of eyes. And he goes on in the chapter to um, ex- explain that a, a little bit. But it's, it's kind of crazy. But here's the, here's the point. Since nations begin having kings, one of the most important symbols of a king's power and might and, 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 and money and, or like wealth and ability has been the throne room that they had. In fact, Second Chronicles 9, if you, if you go there and, and read, it gives this incredible depiction of the throne of King Solomon. In fact, it says nowhere ever, like nowhere before or since has there been a throne like King Solomon's. It was beautiful, huge made of ivory, overlaid with gold. He overlaid ivory with gold like it was, you know, um, AC2 treated lumber that you were trying to hide somewhere. I I don't understand that. Anyway, thrones and throne rooms are incredibly important because if you're the king and another king is coming in, you want them to come into a room that takes their breath away. You want to, 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 to depict like your your 
kingdom hinges on this moment when I walk into the room, and it's a credible moment. And so John is trying to paint this, this picture of the throne of, of God, and, and, and the people that he's writing to probably had mental images or ideas of what the throne of Solomon looked like. And, and what John is saying, that look, no, no throne, not even Solomon's throne, can hold a candle to God's. When, when the prophets, um, Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and Daniel, when, when they had visions of the throne of God, that that moment where they were there before the throne, um, it, it was um, incredible and it was terrifying. Ezekiel, when he's there, he's like, I should not be here. <laughs> like, I could take me away. I'm an unclean man. I, I can't even be in the presence of, of God. But imagine um, for just a moment, you're living in the first century, okay? You don't have electricity or running water or indoor plumbing um, or any of that, that stuff. You have to wear sandals like my friend Jared all the time. Um, and, uh, you, you know, like it's a different kind of time. Like everybody wears dresses and, and like this, that's the way it is, right? And so you're in the first um, century, you're living under the oppressive throne of, of Rome and, and the Caesar, the king of Rome. And you're facing persecution and really the possibility of death every single day simply because you believe in, in Jesus. And so if you're in that position, John's description of the throne of God conveys a very important message. The message is this, that God is God and before him there are no others. This, this is what John wants us to walk away with in his vision of the throne room of God. He, he wants us to walk away going, wow, that is, that is incredible. He, he wants us to have this idea that if we were in the throne room of God with these 24 elders around, and they're kings, by the way, they all have crowns, and so the, the, the kingdom of God encompasses every other kingdom. That's really, I think, the idea that John's trying to convey uh, uh, here. And, and, and not only that, but there's a sea of, the sea of glass and the rainbow. Like, this is huge. You can't take it in. It's like going to IMAX. You can't take it all in. It's an incredible moment. And John wants us to have this feeling that in this place, we are very, very small. When you walk into the throne room of, of God, it is so overwhelming that, that you just, like, you can't, like, you've got to just get down on your face because that's where you belong. Because there's not, nothing holds a candle to this. And John goes on um, in, in chapter four to talk about these, uh, really these four kind of crazy um, creatures that are on the four sides of the throne. And they have, they have all of these wings and, and they have eyes um, all over the front and the back and all over their bodies. In fact, he goes on to say that they, even on the inside of their body, which I don't know how he saw that, um, but they're just eyes uh, everywhere, all over their, all over their bodies. And, and then John um, says in, in verse 8 of chapter 4 that, that they never cease to say these four creatures, um, cr crazy-looking creatures, different faces and, and like just weird things, that they, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and so just constantly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
And whenever the four creatures give glory to God, John says that, that what he saw was the 24 elders and they would fall down off of their thrones and they would worship God and, and they, would, um, they would sing this, this song. No, this song. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were, um, were created. And so again, John is trying to paint this, this picture. God is on the throne. God is God. There is no one else besides him. He is the pinnacle. He's at the top. Everything else comes from him, comes through him, comes at his will. There is nothing that you or I can do to change him, to move him, to, to get him to do something different. Like he is God. That's what we walk away with. But if you're like me and you read Revelation, you're like, um, there are things that just don't, like, like I, don't, I don't understand this. So in verse 4, John says that the elders are seated on their, on their thrones. And, and then in verse 8, John says that the four creatures, they never cease to give glory to God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then in verse 10, John says that whenever the creatures give glory to God and, and worship God, that the 24 elders, they throw their crowns on the ground before God and they fall off of their thrones and they worship. Here's my question. If the creatures never cease to worship, then the 24 elders will never sit in their thrones. And if they never sit in their thrones and they're always worshiping because the four creatures are always worshiping, then how did John see them sitting in their thrones in verse four? So those are the things that my, that I, my God, how does this work, John? What is it that you're trying to get across to us? Because this doesn't make sense to me. This is like a rainbow that looks like an emerald. It, it doesn't make sense. And this is why revelation is hard to get a handle on. There are too many things to us that just don't make a lot of Sense, And I don't know if they don't make sense because it's 2,000 years ago and we just don't understand the process or, or the language. Or if it just doesn't make sense because it's not supposed to make sense. Because it's supposed to just be this thing that we just can't really put our finger on. Uh, unless you understand it this way. John is trying to paint a picture of heaven, but he's painting it like Picasso and not Michelangelo. Picasso is the, the potato head guy, right? You know, where the nose is over here and the eyes are over there. Like, that's the picture we get of, of heaven as John is, is painting it. And, and Picasso's done some like incredible things. They just don't always make sense. You, you look at the Sistine Chapel. I've never been there. I've seen pictures. Um, but it's beautiful. You know exactly what he's painting. You look at Picasso and go, what was he on? Because that doesn't... I don't, I don't get it. It just doesn't make sense to me. John gets to verse 11, and, and, and he, gets, he just gets really clear here. God is creator and sustainer, and he is worthy above all others to receive glory and honor and power. And so the idea that John leaves us with from his vision of the throne room of God is that number, God is number one and there is no one like him. He's holy, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's everywhere. 
I think that's what we're supposed to walk away with in the picture of the four creatures with the eyes all around them and they have all of these wings. It's that God can go anywhere he wants at any time for any reason. He can do anything he wants. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere, all the time. We can't uh, understand that. His kingdom, the kingdom of God, it encompasses every other kingdom on earth and all kings and all creatures are in submission to him. That's what we walk away with from the 24 elders and the four creatures and the throne room of God. And so John moves into chapter 5. And he begins with John noticing that in God's hand on the throne, and, and by the way, we don't, we don't get really a depiction of God, his, his face or his body or anything, um, until we get to this one moment where John says God uh, has something in his hand. He just noticed it, and it's a scroll and it has seven seals on it. And, and so number seven um, pops up again, right? We've talked about that. Um, we've talked about that before. Uh, and so uh, here's what he says. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or, or look into it. John's saying, look, there's nobody. This scroll is sealed with seven seals. Nobody can open it. And John began to weep because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Until one of the elders said to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's and it's seven seals. Now, um, we'll learn in the rest of John's revelation that the scroll that God is holding in his hand contains the plan for how heaven and humanity are going to be brought into unity. That's what the scroll is, is about. And, and, and nobody can open it because it's sealed tightly. That's the, that's the seven seals are supposed to depict that. That it's not just sealed with one seal, but seven. That's the number of completion. It's completely sealed. Nobody can open it. And the idea is that if no one can open the scroll, then what the scroll contains will never happen. And that's why John is crying. John is crying because if no one can open the scroll, then its contents will never be known and they will never come to pass, which means heaven and humanity will never again be in unity. It's a big deal that this scroll gets opened. And, and John is going, there's, there's nobody, nobody to open it. Look, they've looked in heaven, they've looked on earth, they've looked under the earth, they've looked in the earth. There's nobody who can open this scroll. Until one of the elders sees the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. Now, this term, lion of the tribe of Judah, goes all the way back into Genesis. Um, Joshua has been sold into slavery into Egypt. His family comes down. Finally, all of them come down, and they live out their lives. And Jacob, their father, uh, whose name was changed to Israel, he's the father of the nation of Israel, and his 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob is there on his deathbed, and he is blessing each of his children. He's going down the lion, line, line of his kids, and he's, and he's blessing them. That's what every father did in, in that um, generation. And, and so he gets to 
um, to Judah, and, and he says this, Judah crouched like a lion. The scepter will never depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. That's, that's the reference. And so the elder sees the lion of the tribe of Judah. He sees the person from the line of Judah, Israel's son, who will be king in the line of, of David. He, he goes on um, to, the, to the next picture. Um, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it, it says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is um, King David's father, um, and so the father of the kingly line of David. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And, and so what they're saying in that prophecy is that it's going to look like Jesse's line, that King David's line is cut off and it's stopped and nobody cares about King David anymore. But a shoot is going to come up. Somebody who's in the line of David, who comes from David's bloodline, and he's going to become king and he'll be a king and from him the kingdom will never pass. So you put these two things together. That this new king from the line of David will accomplish what David could not. You see, a lot of people believed that David was the Messiah. They were waiting for him. They, they expected his kingdom was going to be great because he was going to usher in the kingdom of God. But it never happened. David failed. And then David had a son named Solomon, and there was no king like him before. And everybody thought Solomon was the Messiah. He's the one that's going to bring about the kingdom of God. And they enjoyed it for a long time. I mean, they, they, the kingdom under Solomon was like it had never been before. It was incredible. Life was perfect for the Israelite people, except then, then Solomon failed and sinned and lost the nation um, as well. And so John um, turns from the elder there, and he's expecting to see a king. Um, he's expecting to see the king that every Old Testament prophet spoke of, a king arrayed in splendor, perhaps sitting atop a, a white stallion with a, a huge army uh, behind him. This is what John expects based on what he's been told by the angel, but it's not what he sees. And that's going to be repeated, what John hears or expects versus what John sees. They're going to be different things, and it's important to note that because it speaks to the things that we expect to see in our lives, we expect to see God do or, or happen in our lives versus what God is actually doing. And I don't know if your life is anything like mine, but often the things I expect God to do and the things that God actually does are different. That's what's going on here. Um. And so we go back. Between the throne of the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Standing as though it had been slain. Now, the, the idea here, every Jew would understand, this was a sacrificial lamb. It had been sacrificially and, and, and ritually slaughtered. Its neck had been cut to bleed it out before it was offered to God as a sacrifice. And so there's a lamb standing there when John turns with its neck slit, blood all over its white wool. It was not a, a pretty or a comfortable sight. And, and to make it worse, this, this bloody, disgusting lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. Um, the eyes are the seven spirits of God. That, that was in what we looked at um, last week. 
And it was in chapter 4, the, the seven flames around the throne of God. There's the seven spirits of God that sent out to all the earth. It's a Holy Spirit, that's what he's talking about. And the lamb, this slaughtered, bloody, disgusting lamb with horns coming out all over its body and eyes all over the place, this lamb took the scroll from the right hand of, of God who was seated on the, on the throne. Now, now we know what the seven um, eyes uh, represent. The seven horns have, have a very specific meaning too. Um, in the Old Testament writing, when you saw a horn, it's going to come again in Revelation later, a horn always represents a kingdom or a king. And, and so what John is trying to help us understand when he gives us this picture of this lamb is that this, this lamb, this slaughtered, helpless, defenseless lamb is the king of kings. That, that's the horn meaning. He, he's the complete king. He's the total package. He's um, the one. This king is lacking nothing. Now, again, if you lived in the first century and you were being oppressed by a foreign nation, and in those days, um, might makes right um, is how they lived. So every nation was conquered by another nation at some point, and it just went back and forth all the time. And if you were a first century person, you're always living in fear that something was going to happen and some other bigger nation was going to come in and conquer you and it was going to be famine and death and destruction. And, it, and it's, not like, it's not like here. This is not like friendly fire. When another nation came in, they would um, build siege. There would no, be no food. There would be no water. When they finally got into the city, they would literally just hack people to pieces. And that's why when we read the Old Testament, we hear things about this nation came in to destroy them and they cut open the bellies of pregnant women so the children came out and everybody, I mean, this was horrible, awful stuff that they were living in. And if that's the time period that you lived in, wouldn't you want to know that your king was the best king, the strongest king, the wisest king, the mightiest king, the wealthiest king, the best king? king, the most powerful and brave and unbeatable king. That's what John expected to see. So what is this? John sees a king that's supposed to be a perfect king, but he looks like he lost the battle. This king isn't a lion. He's a lamb. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures that were around the throne and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb. And they were each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And the four creatures and the 24 elders, they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, and people, and nation. You have made them together a kingdom. Not just a kingdom, but they're all priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And, and so um, here's what this means. 
Here's what this means. Excellent. Right there. Jesus overcame by allowing himself to be overcome. That's what's happening in the story. That's the picture that John is painting. Jesus is our Passover lamb from Exodus chapter 12 who died in our place and his blood saves us. And it not only covers our sin, it erases it. It takes it away. It takes it away so much and so completely that we don't have to go to anybody else in order to get to God. We can all be priests and approach the throne of God ourselves. This was unheard of. Jesus conquered by allowing himself to be conquered. And it's completely backwards. And and here's why. All the precepts, all the rules and laws, all the precepts that God instituted from Mount Sinai over time, Jesus performed. He was sinless. He did everything. All the covenants that God made with his creation, Jesus completed. He was able to do what nobody else was able to do. All the directions that Jesus gave his followers, Jesus followed. You you think about Jesus says, to his disciples at one point, um, listen to what I say, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What? That's crazy. Nobody does that, God. No, nobody does. Like, that's crazy talk. And yet, what did Jesus do? He's on the cross. He's beaten and, and, and bloodied. He's a slain lamb. And while he's there, he prays for the people who are killing him. And he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus is worthy to open the scroll and lead creation to its ultimate conclusion because he completely trusted God, even to his death. Who is John writing to? He's writing to people who are facing death because of their faith just like their king. In in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus writes to the seven churches in Asia, which are representative of every church in every age, everywhere. And he instructs them to keep the faith and not give up, even in the face of death. And, And this is how the first followers and all followers overcome. We look like Jesus what we're supposed to do. Instead of demanding the best, we're um, to take the worst. Instead of positioning ourselves at the first, we willingly go last. Instead of demanding our rights, we fight for the rights of others. And instead of seeking power and fame and glory for ourselves, we work for the power and fame and glory of our God. And so John is pointing to Jesus as a king to be followed. And as one with God, that's the picture of John four, uh, Revelation 4 and 5. And as we would follow and obey and listen to God, we must follow and obey and listen to Jesus. Every prophecy in the Old Testament was pointing to this Messiah king, except everybody thought that the Messiah would be a physical king of a physical kingdom, and he would rule with might and, and, and power and, and 
political power and, and wealth and, and wisdom, and, and he'd be this um, world God who reigned everything, and yet that was not God's plan. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this, of this world. John is giving a prophecy from the other side of the Messiah. The, the king has come. But, but he didn't come like anybody expected. He didn't come and set up this earthly kingdom. He died as a sacrifice for us. And John is pointing back to that moment at the cross. And he's like, look, this moment where Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, he actually inaugurated the kingdom of God. He brought about what's going to happen in the scroll. T today is... Um, Kind of a unique uh, day uh, for a couple uh, reasons. We started in chapter four with God the Father worshiped above all creation. And today it's Father's Day. <laughs> and, and we're celebrating fathers like we celebrate our heavenly father. But in chapter five, Jesus is celebrated. And Jesus is celebrated because he's the lamb who set us free. Today is also um, Juneteenth. Um, I think it's the first time. It's a real national holiday, first or second year. And it's a day that is celebrated um, because today many of the African Americans learned of their freedom from slavery in Texas mainly. And so in just a few um, moments, we're going to celebrate um, communion together, our, our Father and His incredible plan to rescue humanity and our Savior who paid for our freedom through His own blood. And we're going to continue this worship that John has been talking about in, in Revelation 4 and, and 5 where the, the creatures and the, and the elders um, worship God, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. As we take communion, we remember that moment and we celebrate that um, together. And, and so um, we have the communion station set up. In a few minutes, you'll have the opportunity to do that um, when, when the band plays. But I want you to check this one um, last thing out. In um, chapter 4, John paints this beautiful and fearful picture of the throne room of God. Um, he is the one true king of creation, and all creatures and elders and everything worships him. And, and then he sets Jesus up as the only one in all of God's creation worthy and able to bring heaven and humanity into unity. And just like the four creatures and the elders worshiped God, they now worship Jesus as the king who was slain. This sacrifice lamb who ransomed creation back to God. And, and what we see in that chapter is this beautiful crescendo as the four creatures and the 24 elders worship God. And then they worship Jesus who brought about the kingdom of God and made every person a priest who will reign with him on earth. And then the angels join in this worship. John says myriads, thousands upon thousands of angels 
join in this worship. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then John says, joining the four creatures and the 24 elders and the thousands upon thousands of angels is every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. And they sing together these words. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and glory and honor and might forever and ever. And the crescendo of heaven, it encompasses all of creation over all of history and into all of eternity. The rocks and the trees and the planets together with all of the people lift their voices to praise the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the God who rules it all. And this is our God who did not spare his son, but he loved us so much that he gave him as a sacrifice for us. And this is our king who overcame by allowing himself to be overcome so that he might purchase eternity for all who believe. And so we're gonna worship, we're gonna worship together with all the creation, the creatures and the elders and the planets and all the people. We're gonna worship the God who was and who is and who is to come.